thank you, Bill. Um, it is a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, as Bill alluded to, I have the uh, distinct pleasure of serving you as your deacon of finance. So as you might would imagine, whenever you ask a deacon of finance to get up and to speak in front of a crowd, what are we going to speak on this morning? But tithing and the reasons to give to the new building fund. So if everyone will just go ahead and pull out your checkbooks and just write a figure and whatever you think the figure is, just double it. We'll just make this as painless as possible and we can beat everyone out of here to lunch. While that might be the kind of sermon that you expect for me to preach this morning, please hold back your disappointment. As today, we will instead be continuing on in our study through the book of John. In this message, we will be picking up where Mark left off at the crucifixion. My title for today's message is this, Scripture scripture Fulfilled, Reasons to Find Hope in the Midst of Despair. And our text is John 19, 31 through 42. But before we jump into our text, let's do a quick review of where we are in, in this day, because it is a continuation of the same day from last week. We pick up our story. We are still outside the city walls of Jerusalem at the place known as Golgotha. The shofar has just sounded, signaling the start of the Passover sacrifices. And we are mere hours away from the Passover Sabbath beginning. Jesus has just exclaimed, it is finished. Willingly bowing his head and giving up his spirit for you and for me. Sadness begins to grip his followers as they flee flee into hiding. The members of the Sanhedrin take a sigh of relief as their chief critic now hangs dead on a cross. Off to the side, we see the Roman executioners huddled together playing a game, trying to block out the sound of screaming, dying men. And at the foot of the cross, we hear the wails of a mother in pain. She has just watched her baby boy die. His beaten, bloody body now hangs limp from the cross where it was nailed. As she sits there wailing, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the mother of the two sons of Zebedee try to comfort her as she sobs uncontrollably into the arms of the one whom Jesus loved, John. Amongst the onlookers, we hear whispers of of disbelief between the crowd. How did we end up here? Wasn't this supposed to be the king promised of old? The one who would vanquish the Romans and bring back the line of David? How could the prophecies have been so wrong? Have we fallen victim to some sort of a trick orchestrated by a con man? Why are we at this place? Our hopes dashed, our lives destroyed, and for what? Nothing? Things seem like they can't get any worse, and it is here that our text begins. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 19, 31 through 42, the passage will be on the screen. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came 
and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus at night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let us pray. God, teach us today how we might find hope in the midst of despair. Reveal your word to us, God, so that we may leave here changed. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, a close examination of this passage will reveal to us three reasons why we can find hope even in the midst of despair. In these verses, we will see this. First, we can find hope in the midst of despair because God always keeps his promises. Second, we can find hope in the midst of despair because God uses the unlikely to accomplish his will. And third, we can find hope in the midst of despair because hope spurs us to take action, even when we don't feel like it. Let's go ahead and jump right on into reason one, which is this. We can find hope in the midst of despair because God always keeps his promises. As you may recall, the events leading up to this time revolved around the annual Jewish festival known as Passover. This highly ritualized event took place every year in the month of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar, sometime between late March and early April. And it celebrates the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. From the 10th through the 14th of Nisan, each family would set aside a lamb to be carefully examined by the priesthood. Only a male lamb, without spot or blemish, was approved by the priest for sacrifice. If the animal was, was proven spotless, it was then killed on the afternoon of, of the 14th of Nisan before the celebration officially began on the 15th. In Exodus 12, 3 through 6, we see this established. Now tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, earlier in the book of John, we see uh, John the Baptist established Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. To prove this, each gospel includes unique details about what transpired in the days leading up to the crucifixion. Piecing these details together with our text today, we can see how God fulfilled his promise and redemption to the Jewish people through his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Passover lamb. In John 11, we see that Jesus enters Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, on the eighth day of Nisan, two days before the festival is set to begin. He intentionally stops here because he wants to avoid being arrested before his time. But also catch this. Because of this delay, when Jesus enters Jerusalem to Christ of Hosanna on the tenth day of Nisan, thereby symbolically presenting himself as the perfect Passover lamb, each family also would have been setting aside their lambs for inspection by the priest. Then, from the 14th day of the month, Jesus is tested by four groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, and Herodians, to examine his purity. These are the same groups of people who would have been examining each family's lamb to make sure that they were perfect and spotless 
and worthy for sacrifice. Author David Dube describes the types of questions that Jesus is asked by these groups as common questions of rabbinic discourse. First, a legal question by the priests and elders. By what authority do you do these things? Second, a vulgar question by the Pharisees and Herodians designed to ridicule a belief. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Third, a question of principles of conduct by the Sadducees. What will marriage be like in heaven? And fourth, a question based on narrative interpretation by the Pharisees. Of all the commandments, what is the greatest? With each of these answers to these scrupulous questions, Jesus proves himself as the perfect, spotless Passover lamb, and therefore worthy of taking our place as the Passover sacrifice. In fact, he does this so well that his interrogators even affirm his purity. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. These carefully scripted interactions had to take place according to the Jewish calendar at Passover. If they had taken place even a few days before this, there would not have been sufficient atonement on our behalf. In his book, The Forgotten Jesus, Robbie Gallaty writes this, Jesus died at the exact moment in the time the Father predestined for him to be killed as an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. Now, once inspected and proven worthy for sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice would then take place on the 14th day of Nisan at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. Now, as you may recall, this is the exact moment that Jesus died, as Mark and Levi have alluded to in their sermons over the previous weeks. Remember also, as Mark said last week, John is writing this book to a predominantly Jewish people. Why? So that they might believe. So he includes specific details, not only about the time that Jesus dies, but also what happens to his body after death. Let's look back at our text, John 19, 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Notice first here, that is the Jews who make this request. Because to them, to leave a man dying or dead on the cross on a Sabbath, much less a high Sabbath, would have been an utter abomination to them. But I believe they would have also had a secondary motive in making this request. Realizing that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah of old, they would have remembered the scriptures and known that the Messiah's bones were not to be broken. So what do they do? They make this request to to Pilate asking him to break his bones. But Pilate and the Roman executioners don't realize that this is their secret intention. And so when they carry out the execution, uh, he gives permission for them to break the bones of the criminals hanging on the cross. But the people at the site somehow don't get the message that that is still what is supposed to be done. So what do they do? Unknowingly, unknowingly, they fulfill several passages of scriptures 
by piercing Jesus' side instead. Concerning the Passover lamb, we know that in Exodus 12, 46, it says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers 9, 12 goes on to say, They may not leave any of it until morning, nor break any of its bones. They must observe the Passover according to its statutes. Speaking of Jesus the Messiah, the psalmist says this, He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. And in his prophetic writing, Zechariah gives these details. Then I will pour out on the house of David, on the people of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and prayer. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves a firstborn son. Note also, as John is describing these details, he makes a quick aside. He intentionally pauses and self-attest to the accuracy of the events. Why? So that the people might believe. The early church would have known the Old Testament prophecies and would have wanted to confirm the accuracy of the Messiah. And so in writing this passage, we see John's clear intention is to give them hope in the knowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be. God fulfilled the scripture through Christ's sacrificial death, bringing salvation to all who would trust in him. Now, going back to our timeline, once the soldiers had finished carrying out the execution of Jesus, it would have been well after 3 p.m. at this point. This meant that it was time for the Jewish people to begin their preparations for the Passover Sabbath, also known as the High Sabbath. Established in Leviticus 23, 6 through 8, the Passover Sabbath started at twilight on the 14th of Nisan and went through the 15th. It was a period of rest and reflection in which the people would have marked the start of the Passover sacrifices and the Feast of Unleavened Bread so that they would remember back to how the Lord had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. But this Passover Sabbath would have been different. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see what the Jews could not see all those years ago. With the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, Jesus, God was not just delivering them from the confines of a man-made yoke and whip, as he had in the story of Exodus. Rather, this time, he is delivering them from the chains of sin and death. No longer would there need to be all the bloodshed that had just taken place in the temple. No longer would they have to set aside a lamb and enter the presence of Jesus through a priest. They now had direct access to God through the atoning blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This would have given them every reason to not mourn his death, but to celebrate it for what it was. God keeping his covenant with his people, making this the last Passover ever needed. This fulfillment of scripture was the hope his followers and the Jewish people could have clung to as they sat together, huddled and scared in the hours and days after Jesus' death. It is also something that we can cling to today. Now, it is important to know that with the Passover Sabbath falling on Friday the 15th, that meant that the following day, Saturday the 16th, would have been the weekly Sabbath. This two-day interval is important as, as it is also the fulfillment of prophecies predicting the Messiah's death. Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us down that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Jesus also predicts his own death, utilizing the same two-day gap in time. 
From that, time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. This timing is also important because with the high Sabbath and the weekly Sabbath happening back to back, that meant that the Jews would not be able to do any work from twilight of that day on the 14th until Sunday the 16th. Why? Because if they did work of any kind, they would have violated their covenant with God, thereby subjecting themselves to death as established in Exodus 31, 13 through 16. So what would have happened is that they would have taken the time after the 3 p.m. sacrifice had happened to prepare for two days without any kind of work. These hours between 3 p.m. and twilight were known as the day of preparation. I mention this detail now because it will be crucial as we examine what role um, Joseph and Nicodemus play later on in our passage. But before we get to that, let's look at this. Reason two we can find hope in the midst of despair is because God uses the unlikely to accomplish his will. Now, as you put together the image that we have of Pilate from the gospel narratives, you may be viewing him as a weak leader who just relented at the slightest bit of pressure. Well, let me assure you, that was anything but the case. No, Pilate was a brutal man whom God used, much like he used Pharaoh in the Old Testament story from Exodus, to bring about his will. This time, though, instead of hardening Pilate's heart as he did Pharaoh's, he softens it so that the scripture could be fulfilled. To understand this, though, we need to have a little background on Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province known as Judea, and he served under the emperor Tiberius. He had been sent to Judea for a specific mission, to keep the rebellious Jewish people in line, taming them in the Roman way. This mission put him at odds with the people of Jerusalem in every sense of the word. Historical accounts paint Pilate as the most hated representative of Roman rule in the land of Judea. The historian Josephus goes on to describe him as someone who would antagonize the Jews to the point of rebellion, and then he would send his troops in to wipe them out. He was irreverent and gave no cause nor thought to the customs of the Jewish people that he was governing. For example, to honor Caesar, he had statues or busts of the emperor placed throughout the city of Jerusalem. This infuriated the locals because Jewish law specifically prohibits the making of images. He also stole money from the temple in order to build an aqueduct through the city of Jerusalem, further infuriating them. And these are only two examples of the things that he did to frustrate the people in Jerusalem. That's why these historical facts make what takes place in our story so surprising. Instead of acting as the brutal tyrant he was known to be, Pilate takes a different approach. As we heard in last week's message, rather than lashing out at the Jews who had unceremoniously stormed his residence, demanding a trial, Pilate listens to them. And then, as they present their case, this normally decisive man all of a sudden becomes indecisive, struggling and unsure of what to do with Jesus. So what does he do? He turns Jesus over to Herod in an attempt to not make a decision. But then when Herod can't make a decision, he then turns him back over to Pilate. Then as Jesus is standing before him, Pilate gets word from his wife, as we see in Matthew 27, 19, to have nothing 
to do with this righteous man. So to avoid killing him, what does Pilate do? He offers to release Jesus as part of the Passover sacrifice, thinking that would be the end of it. But the crowd wants nothing to do with this. Instead, they ask Pilate to release Barabbas, not Jesus. So Pilate yields and has him flogged in an attempt to yet again not make a decision. But the people and the Jewish leaders won't relent. They want blood. So he eventually goes against his conscience and turns Jesus over to be killed. Now remember that this is something Pilate had done many times before. And so in sentencing a man to die, this would have been something that he had typically enjoyed in his past. Using it in an excruciatingly slow and brutal means of execution was the Roman way to send a clear message to the people and to anyone who had questioned the authority of Caesar. Which is exactly what the Jews were doing as it related to Jesus in order to get the sentence of death, accusing him of starting a rebellion against Caesar. But not only would they crucify the individual, no, as a further deterrent, what they would typically do is that once a crucified man had died, they would leave his body up and hanging on the cross for days or weeks, allowing it to decompose and rot in the hot sun. And so they would be picked over and his flesh would be eaten by the birds and the beast. Now, all of this makes Pilate's decision in our text so unlikely and so unusual you see, the Jewish leaders would have known what typically happened to the, to the condemned. They had seen it coming, and they knew it because they had seen it time and time again. They had seen how Pilate had carried this out. But this time, Pilate doesn't follow his pattern. No, he gives permission so that the legs could be broken early and so that the bodies could be disposed of. Not only that, but when he is later approached by Joseph, he then again relinquishes uh, the body of Jesus to him for burial. The only explanation for all of this is that can be that God suffered or softened Pilate's heart so that he could carry out his will through him. This is something somewhat ironically that we can find hope in today. You see, God will use whomever he wants to And he will use whatever he needs to in order to accomplish his will in our lives. Lastly, get this. Reason three why we can have hope in the midst of our despair is that hope spurs us to action even when we don't feel like it. Now, there are two more characters from our story that are still deserving of our attention that we haven't touched on just yet. Joseph of Arimathea, whom we see approach Pilate, and his colleague Nicodemus. Now, both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin. Even more impressive, they were members of the Great Sanhedrin, a uh, body of 71 elders who acted as the Supreme Court in the land of Judea. That means that these two men more than likely would have heard Jesus' case litigated earlier that morning. But to learn more about both these men, we need to piece together several different passages of Scripture so that we have a clear picture of who they were. In Mark 15, 43, we learn that Joseph was a respected member of the council who also was looking for the kingdom of God. We know that according to Matthew 27, 57, he was a wealthy man who, when it was evening, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, 
who also was a disciple of Jesus. Luke 23, 50 through 51 goes on to say that he was someone who had not consented to their decision and action as it related to the Sanhedrin's conviction of Jesus. Many scholars interpret him as the man described in the passage on the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with a wicked man and with a rich man in his death. Now, Nicodemus, on the other hand, is someone that we have seen several times through our study on John. In John 3, we learn that he is a Pharisee grappling with the fact that all the signs point to Jesus as a teacher come from God. John 3, 1 through 2. And because he is afraid of how he might be perceived by the Pharisees, Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night rather than in broad daylight. You may say that makes him the original Nick at night. Some of you older people get that joke. Now later in John 7, 50 through 51, we get another glimpse of Nicodemus, but this time he is bolder in his approach to Jesus. From these verses, we learn that when the chief priests and Pharisees want to arrest Jesus, it is Nicodemus who comes to his defense, using the law to his advantage. Now Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? John seven fifty through 51. This question distracts the religious leaders for the time being, allowing Jesus to avoid arrest because his time had not yet come. Now, with both these backgrounds in mind, let's flash forward to the foot of the cross. Here we see these two men, and they were probably standing next to one another watching Jesus die. As they stand there, they're probably discussing their different encounters that they had had with Jesus. As they talk with him hanging above them, Nicodemus would have, re- would have recognized the symbolism and remembered what had, just, what had taken place that night back in chapter 3. When Jesus said to him, just as the Son of Man lifted a snake up in the, or excuse me, just as Moses lifted the snake up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus only confirmed his validity in their eyes, demonstrating that he was the fulfillment of scripture. To know what happens next, we need to piece together the different events from the different narratives of the gospels. After Jesus dies, we know that the Sanhedrin returns to prepare for the Passover Sabbath. But on their way back, Joseph and Nicodemus breaks off from this group of people to carry out a plan that they had hatched. Hurriedly, walking back to the city, they know it is after 3 p.m., which means that they are in the middle of the day of preparation and mere hours from the start of the Passover Sabbath. If they don't hurry, the day is going to get away from them. So back within the city walls, the two men then separate from one another. Joseph heads straight to the imperial palace to see Pilate. Reaching the gate, he's probably out of breath because he's in a hurry. And he asks for the guard standing there for an audience with Pilate. Ushered in, he sees Pilate who just a few hours ago had given permission to his fellow members of the Sanhedrin to dispose of Jesus' body in a shallow, unmarked, and uncovered grave. With all the boldness that is within him, Joseph clears his throat and requests that Jesus' body instead be released to him for burial, nullifying the intentions of his colleagues. Given the timing of this request, Pilate must have been so confused. Wasn't this man one of the Jewish leaders he had just met with? 
Having also just given them permission to have Jesus' legs broken, Pilate is surprised to learn that Jesus has died so quickly. So turning to a centurion who is standing nearby, Pilate asked for confirmation. Now this centurion had more than likely just returned himself from the execution site to give a report on the status of the dying men. We see that in Mark 15, 45. If that is the case, then this would have been the same centurion that we see in Matthew 27, 54, who had marveled with awe at all that had transpired as Jesus died, exclaiming out loud that truly this was the Son of God. Receiving confirmation of Jesus' death, Pilate then releases his body to Joseph. As he hands him a written order, Joseph thanks him and quickly exits out of his presence so that he can make the trek back to Golgotha. At some point along the way, he stops and either procures for himself or purchases a clean linen shroud that will be needed to carry out the burial customs. Now, while Joseph is with Pilate, Nicodemus is also on a mission back in the city. However, he is there to quickly buy the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, that will be needed to properly bury Jesus in accordance with the Jewish customs. Once he purchases these ingredients, he also returns back to Golgotha. As they meet back at the crosses, the two men present Pilate's orders to the guards, granting them permission to take possession of Jesus' body. The guards are relieved at this, and they turn to deal with the two other prisoners who are either dead or still dying. Nicodemus and Joseph then pull down the cross and slowly begin the process of ripping the nails back out of Jesus' flesh. They then wrap his lifeless body up as best they can so they can transport him to a nearby tomb, which Joseph has secured and procured originally for himself. In John 19, 41, we read, Now in the place there where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Matthew 27, 59 through 60 goes on to add that, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Now, according to John 1940, they hastily anoint his body as best they can. So they took the body of Jesus, bound in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. We know that they are rushed in this task and are thus unable to complete it before the end of the day, before twilight happens. How do we know this? Because after both the Passover Sabbath and the weekly Sabbath had taken place, Mark reports that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome arrive at the tomb with spices so that they might further anoint the body of Jesus. Mark 16, 1. So with minutes left before the sun will set, the two men rush out of the tomb and quickly roll a rock over it to block its entrance. And we know that Mary Magdalene and Mary, most likely the mother of James, are standing there looking on as this is happening. Quickly, all of them turn and hastily return back to the city so that they can start the Passover Sabbath. All of this is spurred on by their hope that Jesus is who he said he was. They are confident that he had fulfilled the scripture they had studied all of their lives and that in two days' time, he would rise again as he promised. What an encouragement that is to us when these two men could have easily folded back into the crowd with their fellow members of the Sanhedrin, when they could have simply overlooked all the signs that were taking place 
as so many others had. Their hope drove them to action. Maybe today you're sitting there questioning if Jesus is who he claimed to be, wondering if all of this is true. You may also be finding yourself placing your hope in people or things that can never bring you peace. If that is the case, let me encourage you to seek someone out today to start a conversation about how you can find peace and hope in Jesus Christ. I know that any of the elders, deacons, or volunteers today would be more than happy to have that conversation with you. Now, for those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus, let our text today serve as further confirmation that he is who he said he was. And a reminder that he has a plan for your life and he will do anything and everything he needs to to bring that plan about to fruition. And that is where we leave our story for today. The Lamb of God dead, laid in the tomb. The members of the Sanhedrin gloating, thinking they had won. Pilate confused by all that has transpired. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are utterly exhausted, preparing to answer the inevitable questions that are sure to come their way when their fellow members of the Sanhedrin find out what they have done. Emotionally and physically exhausted, everyone in the city prepares to enter a time of Sabbath rest and reflection. At this point, no one fully grasps what has transpired, but the Son of Man has been lifted up. And in three days' time, all of Scripture will be fulfilled. As Jesus walks out of that tomb, victorious over death, sin, hell, and the grave. It's a borrowed tomb because he only needs it for three days. Today, just as he assured Mary and Martha before bringing Lazarus back from death to life, he says the same thing to you and to me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So come to Jesus and live. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can find life in you. We praise you because you are victorious over sin, death, and the grave. We thank you that you bring hope to us in the midst of despair and troubling times. And all we have to do, God, is place our trust in you. It's a free gift. Nothing that we can earn will ever, will ever satisfy that, God. But only the sacrificial death of your son, fulfilling these passages of scripture, God, and your promises that you will make it so that we can have life with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.